Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century particular Baptist preacher in England, uh, said this about the knowledge of Christ. He said, our knowledge of Christ is somewhat like climbing one of our Welsh mountains. When you're at the base, you see but a little. The mountain itself appears to be but one half as high as it really is. Confined in a little valley, you discover scarcely anything but the rippling brooks as they descend into the stream at the foot of the mountain. Climb the first rising knoll, and the valley lengthens and widens beneath your feet. Go higher, and you see the country for four or five miles round, and you are delighted with the widening prospect. Mount even still, and the scene enlarges, till at last, when you're on the summit, and look east, west, north, and south, you see almost all England lying before you. The knowledge of Christ, as Spurgeon points out, is like climbing a mountain. And we can't truly see what is all around us in a right way without Christ. You can't truly see the countryside in all of its beauty without climbing up the mountain. Spurgeon says, Christ is like that mountain. I think if we're honest today, we'd recognize that there are all kinds of people throughout our society that claim to be able to have the answers to life's questions. They claim to be able to help you see life more clearly and have greater understanding as to what all of this means. Well, as we look at today's text, I think what we'll see is that the mystery of God's salvation is revealed in Jesus Christ. So all knowledge that we need, all knowledge to understand this life, is found in Jesus Christ. So the mystery of God's salvation is revealed in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Christ is our message and our confidence. The mystery of God's salvation is revealed in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Christ is our message and our confidence. And if you're joining us this morning... Uh, we are continuing our walk through the book of Colossians. We just try to go passage by passage. So we started Colossians just a few weeks ago. But just to give you some background at, into this letter, it was written around 60 to 62 AD. So roughly 30 or so years after Christ's ministry. And it was written by Paul while he was a prisoner in Rome. And as he's writing this uh, letter to the church in Colossae, he's also writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. And it was written, as I just said, and as the title of the book uh, alludes to, to the church in Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey. So if you think of modern-day Turkey, that's essentially where uh, this church was located. They're a young church. They weren't founded by Paul. Uh, in fact, Paul had, had never been there. They were founded by a man, Epaphras, and Paul speaks highly of him. But Paul is writing to this church because he wants to help this church think more clearly about the gospel. In Colossae, there are all kinds of people claiming to have the answers to life's questions. And so they were offering these different kinds of understandings. And this is actually called the Colossian heresy. So if you want to look more into it, you just Google what is the Colossian heresy and you can find some helpful resources there. But just to give you a summary, of it, the Colossian heresy was essentially taking all the other pagan religions, all the other pagan ideas as to what the answers to life are, and saying Christ is one part of that, and all these others fit together with it. 
the, the theological term for that is syncretism. So they're taking all the other ideas and synchronizing them with Christianity and saying these two can work and live together. So some of the philosophies of men that were prevalent were those that denied the all-sufficiency and the preeminence of Christ. They said he, he's great, but he's not all-sufficient. We need, we need more things to have the answers to this life. There was also a lot of Judaistic ceremonialism, which emphasized circumcision, which emphasized, emphasized food regulations and observance of special days. And we'll get to these as we continue on in this book where we see it a little bit more explicitly. There was angel worship, uh, which detracted from the uniqueness of Christ. So Christ is, is who we worship. We worship our triune God and through Christ, our mediator. And some uh, in Colossae were saying that we also worship angels. And, and it was detracting from the worship of Christ. And then the, the fourth thing that was kind of thrown in there was this idea of asceticism, which if you don't know what asceticism is, it's, it's essentially um, harsh treatment of the body to deprive your body of what your body wants, and in so doing, you believe that that gives you favor with God. So to combat all of this, Christ, or excuse me, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Colossae. He knows that these ideas are kind of floating around there, and he wants to help them think more clearly about what the gospel is and how they should live in light of all these ideas that are there. And the overall theme that we see as Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church is the fullness and sufficiency of Christ. The fullness and sufficiency of Christ. That's the, the idea that Paul is going to continuously come back to in this book. And in today's text, we see Paul describing his particular ministry to this Colossian church. Now remember, he hadn't visited them. But he's describing his role in their discipleship. And he breaks it down into two parts. And if you look in your outline, look at the outline in your bulletin, you'll see those two parts. In chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, we see a ministry of proclamation. A ministry of proclamation. And then in the first five verses of chapter 2, we see him emphasizing his ministry of assurance. A ministry of proclamation and a ministry of assurance. And if you're looking... Um, Colossians is in the New Testament, and if you're using one of the blue provided Bibles, then that's going to be on page 983, page 983 of the blue provided Bibles there. So we're in chapter 1, and we are starting in verse 24. So look for the big one and the little number 24, and that is where we will begin reading. This is God's word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works 
within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we see in this text. Lord, we pray that as we go through it, that you would help us to see Christ more clearly. Help me to speak clearly. Help us to receive what your word says. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So in that first point there, a ministry of proclamation, right out of the gate, we see at least two things. So look at verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So right out of the gate, Paul is, is making the point that he is, in fact, suffering. He is suffering. It's likely an, an allusion to his imprisonment in Rome. Remember, he's writing from prison. So he is suffering, but he's rejoicing in those sufferings. Apparently, Paul saw suffering as worth it insofar as it built up other churches and caused the gospel to go forward. Paul saw suffering as worth it if it built up churches and caused the gospel to go forward. Churches being built up and gospel expansion equals Paul's joy. And so, right out of the gate, it's, it's helpful for us to recognize that as we proclaim the gospel, we will be met with persecution. Now, in, in America, it might look a little less severe than in other parts of the world, but there will still be hurtful comments. People still may revile us, slander us. It may, it may cost us with our career. We may miss out on opportunities. In some parts of the world, it could even lead to, to physical harm and to death. Not to say that it couldn't happen in America, but it's much more prevalent in some other parts of the world. And so as we look at Paul, rejoicing in the fact that churches are being built up and the gospel is going forward, let's be reminded that as we proclaim the gospel and we're met with some, uh, with some opposition, let's be reminded that's an opportunity for us to rejoice. It's an opportunity for us to be grateful that those who are persecuting us, that the gospel has reached them. If they're persecuting us for the gospel, then praise God, that means the gospel reached them. They heard it. Little seeds of the gospel have been planted. Right out of the gate, Paul makes that point. So when suffering comes for us, let's be encouraged. It's easier said than done, no doubt. But view persecution, view suffering, view opposition as a reason to rejoice. The same, the same way Paul did, because that means the gospel is going forward. But then Paul uses an interesting phrase. In, it's still in verse 24. It's in the second part of that. He says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Christ's afflictions were somehow insufficient? That they were deficient in any way? Well, no. Christ's suffering on the cross is entirely sufficient to cover the sin of all who would call on his name. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't have risen from the grave. The fact that he rose from the grave is outward evidence for us that he never deserved to be put to death to begin with. He was sinless, and he took the sin on for all those who would call on him. And he paid for their sin in full, and death couldn't hold him. So his resurrection is evidence that his payment was entirely sufficient. So it doesn't mean that his afflictions were insufficient or deficient in any way. However, it does mean that if Paul as a member of Christ, is suffering, then Christ is also suffering. Does that make sense? And, and Paul, of, of all people, would know this, right? On, his, on the road to Emmaus, he was going to, to persecute more Christians. He was living a life of, of just absolutely trying to persecute and destroy Christianity. And he was on his way, um, on the road to Damascus, excuse me, not Emmaus. He was on his way to the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden, Christ appears to him. And he says this to Paul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Christ talking to him. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul was persecuting other Christians. And when Jesus appears to him, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And so when Paul says that, that he is filling up what Christ's afflictions were lacking, he's not saying that Christ's afflictions were in any way sufficient, insufficient. However, he is suffering in a way that Christ did not suffer. So Christ suffered to purchase salvation. Paul was suffering for proclaiming that salvation. So it's a different kind of suffering. And so he's, he's filling up Christ's afflictions because he is part of Christ. And so when he suffers, Christ suffers. So he's adding to those afflictions, but not because they were in any way insufficient. Hopefully that makes sense. Christ suffered to purchase salvation. Paul is suffering for proclaiming that salvation. And, and this was really Paul's purpose. If you look at verse 25, he says, it says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This is what Paul is trying to do, is make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, that as he does that, we see that in, in doing so, the, mis- the mystery hidden for ages and generations is then revealed to his saints. So as Paul makes the word of God fully known, the mystery of God that was previously hidden for ages and generations becomes known. It becomes revealed. That mystery, you see in verse 27, is Christ, the hope of glory. So this word mystery is used a few times in this passage. Why? Why why is that word mystery used? Well, one commentator pointing this out, so that Paul is speaking, when he uses the word mystery, of God's unfolding plan for the world. And, above all, his plan of redemption through the Messiah. So when you see that word mystery, he's referring to God's salvation plan, but particularly God's salvation plan through a Messiah. Now why do we need that? Why do we need a salvation plan to begin with? Well, if you look in Genesis, you don't have to turn there right now, but what you see in the first two chapters is God creating. And he created mankind. Created man and woman. Adam and Eve. And they had an agreement with God that they could stay in his presence, in the garden, insofar as they never ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
And if you, if you read just a couple chapters, first few chapters into uh, Genesis, you see that seems to be a pretty good arrangement. And then in that third chapter, we see that they didn't keep up their end. They rebelled against God. They rejected uh, what he had commanded. Now, even though they broke the covenant, God's response, thankfully, was not abandonment. Rather, he used that to establish a new and better covenant. But it didn't happen immediately. He told Eve that through her seed there would be one who would come to crush the head of the serpent, who would deliver a deathly blow to the adversaries of humanity, to Satan himself. And this new and better covenant that he was going to establish would bring God's people into an even closer relationship than what they had in the garden. Now the natural question is, how can, how can we have a closer relationship with God than what we saw in the garden? Like Adam and Eve were walking in the garden with God. How does it get much closer than that? Well, spiritually speaking, in this new and better covenant, God says that not only will we be able to be with him for eternity, physically speaking, but even now he places his spirit inside of us. Adam and Eve didn't have the spirit of God inside of them. And so even if you are in Christ, if you're in Christ today and you're a part of that, that new and better covenant, then you already have a closer relationship with God than what Adam and Eve had. Because he has placed his spirit inside of you. Now, physically speaking, it doesn't feel as close right now. But that day's coming. The new heavens and new earth where we will physically be in his presence. And so we'll not only have that physical intimacy, but we'll also have the spiritual intimacy of his spirit still being inside of us. And then relationally speaking, we've been seated with Christ. You are in Christ. You inherit the intimacy that he has with the Father. There is no one closer to the Father than the Son. And if you are in the Son, then you are seated with him in the closest possible place that you can be to the Father. If you're in Christ, you inherit that intimacy. And so in the new covenant, all the members will know God personally because his spirit is put inside of them. Now, do me a favor. Turn into the Old Testament, if you would, to Jeremiah. So we see this mystery language used a lot throughout this passage. We have to ask the question, what is this mystery? And what it is, is it's God promising and pledging to provide a Messiah to bring his people closer to him. And we see allusions to it throughout the Old Testament. We don't have time to go through all of them, but this one is especially explicit. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 31, so you'll see Song, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to look at four verses. So chapter 31, verse 31. We're going to read through verse 34. So this is just God hinting already at this new and better covenant, this mystery that he's working out in the course of time. We read that, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So there was mystery around when and how those things were going to be accomplished. That's one area in the Old Testament where these kinds of things are promised. There are several. And the question was, how is this going to be accomplished? And when is this going to be accomplished? And the answer, if you look at verse 27 was hidden for ages and generations. So this, this past Friday, there was a Fourth Friday. And if you're familiar with Westerville, you know that every Fourth Friday of the month for uh, summer months or the warmer months, they have a, a town festival. And they go out and people, there's vendors you can eat and you can get nice lemonade and kind of walk through. And you'll see that in a couple sections of Fourth Friday, you have some magicians. And they're doing fun tricks and, and the kids love it. And, and we were watching one of these magicians, and it was actually pretty impressive watching this guy. I'm like, I have no idea how he did that. That's actually pretty impressive. Uh, but one of the reasons that we enjoy watching things like that is because it helps us wonder. It helps us think, wow, there's mystery there. And I don't have the answer. If you guys are familiar, if you've been here any amount of time, I've quoted Christopher Nolan films before. I'm a huge fan of Christopher Nolan films. One of his films that I really like is called The Prestige. And in the beginning of that movie, it's a, it's a movie about these two magicians that are kind of battling it out. They have a rivalry. And in the beginning of the movie, we see this quote. Every great magic trick consists of three parts, or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see if it is indeed real, unaltered, normal. But of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now, you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. Because of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled, but you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. Now, the mystery of God's salvation has been revealed. And just to be clear, I'm not saying God is some cosmic magician. However, God has made a pledge. He made a pledge in Genesis 3 to restore all things, to restore his relationship to his people. He has also done something extraordinary in Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And all of that's great, but until we know what all that means, we don't truly understand what God is doing. And what God is doing in that is bringing us back into a relationship 
with him, a closer relationship than what Adam and Eve even had. And all who call on Christ receive this forgiveness, the forgiveness of their sin, the very thing that was keeping them from God. They receive this forgiveness freely. In Christ, the iniquity, the sin that Jeremiah 31 was talking about is forgiven in full. And all who are saved, they get to know the Lord personally. Personally. To know the creator of the universe. But all of this is only available in Christ. The mystery of God's unfolding plan of salvation is only made understandable in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Colossae, what was happening is they were trying to say there are all these other ways of understanding. And sure, you can add Christ into into it. Maybe that'll help give you a better vantage point. But there are other things that can, can really help you understand what's going on here. And Paul is saying, look, Christ is the sufficient answer. If you want to know the mystery of God's unfolding plan of salvation, how he can restore sinners back to himself, look no further than his son. So therefore, when we look at verse 27, when we see that the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, we can more fully understand that Christ is the key to understanding God's plan of salvation. That his death on the cross was a satisfactory payment. It wasn't a payment that requires even one one-hundredth of one percent of you. And if it did, then salvation would not be accomplished. It has been satisfactorily paid. And through Christ, we can know God personally. And because this is extravagant news, look at verse 28 and 29, Paul wanted to make sure that it was proclaimed far and wide. He says in verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. He elaborates on what proclamation looks like. There's a category of warning and teaching. So we want to warn people of God's impending judgment that is coming for, for all people. We also want to teach them that their sin can be taken away. And that their sin that deserves punishment can be laid upon Christ. Everything that Christ commanded us, we are called to teach. So there's a warning there of, his, of, of God's coming judgment. But then Christ told us to teach others all that he has commanded. We see that in the Great Commission passage of Matthew 28. But then he says to do that with all wisdom. So what does that mean? Proclaiming, warning, teaching in all wisdom. Well, it's a pushback on the empty deceit of men, the philosophy and empty deceit that is mentioned in verse 8 of chapter 2. So if you look there, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. And Lord willing, we'll be able to unpack more of that as we go through um, this, this book. But that pushback, when Paul says in all wisdom, he's saying you don't need the philosophy and empty traditions of men. He says we warn people and we teach people with all wisdom. We have it all in Christ. It's making the point that Christ is, in fact, the fullness of wisdom, which we see in 1 Corinthians 9. And so warning and teaching with all wisdom means at least two things. Warning and teaching means at least two things. So the first one is that our content reflects Christ. Because if Christ is the fullness of wisdom, as 1 Corinthians 9.22 says, then when we teach with all wisdom, 
then it reflects, our content reflects Christ. Following with that? Does that make sense? So our content reflects Christ. That our, when we warn people, when we teach people, it is in alignment with God's word. We don't make it up ourselves. When we warn and teach, it's reflecting the word of God, Jesus Christ. But then the second thing is that our delivery reflects Christ. And, and that reminds us of John 1, when we're told that Jesus was full of grace. Full of grace and truth. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, we see Paul saying that he, in fact, became all things to all people so that he may win some. And so what we see is that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He had the right content, but he also delivered it in a graceful and winsome way. Now, there were categories where he was a little more harsh. But his overall ministry was marked by grace and truth. And sometimes it's a, it's a loving thing to be direct in what may come across as harsh. However, Jesus held both categories perfectly. Grace and truth. He had, he had conviction and he had charity. And Paul said that he became all things to all people so that he could win some. He found ways to take that truth and deliver it, deliver that content in a Christ-like way. Later on in, in Colossians 4, uh, verse 6, Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so when we proclaim Christ like that, with grace and truth, with conviction and charity, we have a far better chance of presenting everyone mature in Christ, as you see at the end of chapter, excuse me, verse 28 in our passage. So 128, where he says he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. We have a much better chance of doing that if we deliver faithful truth that is aligned with God's word, and we do it in a way that reflects Christ. Our warning and teaching is far more effective when the content and delivery of our message reflects Jesus. And so let us, like Paul, if you look at verse 29, toil and struggle with all our energy toward that end. Paul's ministry was marked by proclaiming the mystery of God, proclaiming Jesus Christ. And God's ultimate plan of salvation was hidden for ages and generations, as we just read. But it has now been revealed in Jesus Christ, who loved his people enough to take their penalty upon himself. Upon himself. And so, Christian, proclaim Christ. Proclaim the true gospel. And do it in a Christ-like way. Make this mystery known to others. Like Paul, we're called to make the word of God fully known. Fully known. We don't want to skip over certain sections. That's part of the reason why we're so committed to expository preaching here. We just go book by book, passage by passage, because we want to make the word of God fully known. Even the difficult parts. Parents, make the word of God fully known to your kids. You have a responsibility to train them, to help them understand what God's word says and means. Make it a rhythm with your kids, whether that's morning routine or at lunchtime or at the dinner table or before you go to bed. Just find out what works best for your family, set, set a time, and, and do your best to stick with it. Other church members, we have a responsibility to make God's word fully known to one another. 
It's the, the locking arms together that we do. It's to aid in each other's discipleship. We have responsibility for that. We also have responsibility to other Christians, even those who are not at this church, even those who are not in this city. We want to help them fully know the word of God. But it doesn't stop there. We also have an obligation to make God's word fully known to our lost neighbors, friends, family, co-workers. Let our ministry be similar to Paul's of making the word of God fully known. And if you're not a Christian, the mystery of God's unfolding plan of salvation has now been revealed to you. The question is, are you going to embrace it? Will you believe? Will you entrust yourself to Christ? Or will you take the punishment for sin upon yourself? Paul had a ministry of proclaiming the mystery of God. But he also had a ministry of assurance. The second point there. And the second point will be much shorter than the first one. And so in, in verse 1, Paul wants them to know just how much he's been struggling. Just how much, that word struggling can also mean fighting or striving. Some versions use the word conflict. He wants them to know just how much he's striving on their behalf. If you look at verse 29, before we even get to verse 1, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. And then in verse 1, chapter 2, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And so why does he want them to know how great this struggle is that he has for them? Precisely to increase their assurance. Because if they know how much he's willing to suffer for Christ, then their assurance of Christ's sufficiency will hopefully increase. If somebody's willing to suffer for something, it increases the credibility of that very thing that they're suffering for. Edward Reynolds, a Puritan, he says this. He says, Assurance will assist us in all duties. It will arm us against all temptations. It will answer all objections. And it will sustain us in all conditions. Paul wants this for the Colossians. He wants them to be able to answer all objections. There are plenty of objections going around Colossae with this Colossian heresy. And as they trust the sufficiency of Christ, look what happens. Look at verse 2. Their hearts may be encouraged. They'll be knit together in love. They'll reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then in verse 3, we see they'll acquire all wisdom and knowledge. Others were trying to persuade them with reasonable or plausible arguments. Paul says, continue to look at Christ. Continue to, to fix your eyes on him. And you'll find that you will be encouraged, that you'll be knit together in love for one another. You will acquire wisdom and knowledge and full understanding. But keep looking at Christ. I want you to know, Colossian Church is what he's saying, I want you to know how much I'm suffering for this because this is the answer. I'm willing to be imprisoned for it. I'm willing to be beaten for it. I'm willing to die for it. Let that increase your assurance that Christ is the answer to all of these things. Don't embrace the plausible arguments that you see around you. He mentions this in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That word plausible just means reasonable. And, and honestly, that, that's no different than today. We are presented with all kinds of reasonable arguments against Christianity, especially in the month of June. 
consistently pushed these ideas that are contrary to Christianity that seem reasonable. However, that doesn't mean that they are sufficient. These reasonable arguments claim some form of salvation outside of Christ. Otherwise, they wouldn't be proclaimed. Saying, embrace this. This is truth over here. This is where salvation is. And although it may seem reasonable, it's not sufficient. I was in uh, New Orleans the week before last, and was it my favorite city to be in? Um, I mean, every city's got their stuff that's good and not great, but just wasn't my favorite city to walk around. But what, what you see in New Orleans is, is just a sad picture of a lot of homelessness. You see a lot of tents, a lot of suffering. And it reminded me of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And if you're familiar with New Orleans, you know that Hurricane Katrina in 2005 absolutely wrecked the city. And a lot of people found, they found sound safety in the Superdome, which is where the New Orleans Saints play. But as I was looking around and I was seeing all these tents, I was thinking about Hurricane Katrina, and I was thinking about, man, if anyone entrusted themselves to this camping tent during a hurricane, they would have no shot. One of the safest places was in the largest structure in the city, the Superdome. And it still took on a lot of damage because it could stand the weight of the storm while a camping tent and many homes, many larger structures still couldn't bear the weight of that storm. And here's the thing, man-made salvation solutions that we're presented with all the time, they collapse under the weight of God's judgment. They cannot bear that kind of weight. And Paul is saying, look, don't stake your life on a flimsy man-made argument or a flimsy man-made claim. Don't try to ride out God's hurricane of judgment in a camping tent. Just entrust yourself to the only one who can handle that. The only one who can take on God's wrath, who can bear God's wrath. And he does so for all who take shelter in him. And all who take shelter in him are safe. They get to enter into eternity with God, being seen as perfectly righteous just as the Son is. Why? Because they have entrusted themselves to the Son. They are clothed in the Son's righteousness. So when God looks down on you, if you've received Christ, then he looks down on you and he sees his Son. All the mysteries of God are found in Christ. He is an inexhaustible well, and all who receive him have all of eternity to draw those mysteries out of that well one at a time. And then it's worth noting the, the last verse of the section, verse 5, that churches that do this are marked by at least two things. So Paul is encouraged by this church. There's the Colossian heresy that's going on, but they hadn't fully embraced it. And so Paul was encouraged by them. And we see that in verse 5. And he points out two things that churches that embrace Christ and hold firm to Christ uh, are marked by. Their good order and their firmness of faith. Let us be a church that is marked by good order and firmness of faith. Let's not run away from the world and be scared of the arguments that the world presents us, but let's meet them with Christ. And let's show them that Christ is the answer to all of the questions that the world has. By keeping their eyes on Christ, 
the Colossians would grow in their assurance of the sufficiency of Christ. And they would grow in their understanding of the insufficiency of the false teachings that are all around them. If you want to grow in your understanding of the sufficiency of Christ, then continue to look at Christ. Yes, understand the arguments that are outside of these walls. We, we, we must. But don't become so involved in these arguments that you take your eyes off of Christ, who is the answer. And if you're here today and you're, and you're wrestling with assurance, then I would encourage you, just at some point this week, to open up your Bible, do a little Google research if you need to, and just, just try to find out all of the Old Testament promises for the Messiah, and then look at how Christ has fulfilled each of those. If you want to grow in your assurance, see how Christ has fulfilled all of these promises. And then Christian, if you're here, you're thinking about what your ministry should look like. Look no further than Colossians 2, chapter, or verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, where we see that it's marked by encouragement, love, understanding, and knowledge. Strive to grow in all four of those categories. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, was talking with, with two individuals, and he pointed to them that he, in fact, was the answer to all the promises in the Old Testament. We read in 24, 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus himself claims to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the answer to the mystery of God's salvation. It has been, it was once hidden, this mystery of God's salvation, but it's now been revealed in Christ. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The saints in the Old Testament saw many things through a glass darkly, but they all looked by faith to the same Savior and were led by the same Spirit as ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, concluding his thought about how Christ is that mountain that helps us see all other things, he says the Christian life is like climbing a mountain. When we first believe in Christ, we see but little of him. The higher we climb, the more we discover of his beauties. But who has ever gained the summit? Who has known all the heights and depths of the love of Christ which passes knowledge? Paul, when grown old, sitting gray-haired, shivering in a dungeon in Rome, could say with greater emphasis than we can, I know whom I have believed. For each experience had been like the climbing of a hill. Each trial had been like ascending another summit. And his death seemed like gaining the top of the mountain, from which he could see the whole of the faithfulness and the love of him to whom he had committed his soul. Get up, dear friend, into the high mountain. The mystery of God's salvation has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Christ is our message and our confidence. We proclaim him and we are assured by him. Don't miss the economic language in this, these verses. In verse, chapter 1, verse 27, we see the riches of the glory of this mystery. In chapter 2, verse 2, we see the riches of full assurance of understanding. And in verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look, friends, knowing Christ surpasses all the treasures, all the riches, and all the wealth that this world 
can offer you. We assure one another with Christ, knowing that he is, in fact, sufficient to cover all of our sin. Knowing that he is, in fact, the fullness of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Remember, this whole book is about the fullness and the sufficiency of Christ. We're getting ready to sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. As we sing, I believe it's the third verse, we sing this, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise that you have established a way of salvation. We thank you for being faithful that even when we departed, even when we broke this covenant, you did not abandon us, but you continued to use all of our shortcomings to establish this great plan of redemption that is found in Christ, finally and fully. Help us to see him. Help us to proclaim him and help us to be assured by him. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.